KPBR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Frame to Frame. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover, Real to Real, or as I like to say, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I'll be here with you for the next half hour talking about film. You know, there's some series that really excite me, and the recent series at Pacific Film Archive entitled 1968 and Global Cinema was one of those series. And of those of that series, one of the films that really struck me is the film that's showing this Thursday evening entitled The Battlefront for the Liberation of Japan, Summer in Sana Rizuka. I might not have pronounced that. San Rizuka. Yeah. <laughs> With me is the expert in translation as well as the person who's going to join me to talk about this film. Uh, that's Miriam Sass. She's a professor of comparative literature and film and media at the University of California in Berkeley. She's the author of Experimental Arts in Post-War Japan, Moments of Encounter, Engagement, and Imagined Return, and Fault Lines, Cultural Memories, and Japanese Surrealism. So really perfect for talking about this film. So just to sort of lay the scene, uh, back in the 60s, there was this fight going on about Narita Airport in Japan. And the whole idea is that the farmers and students organized together to fight the building of this airport. And if any of you go to Japan, it's the main airport now. So the fight didn't win. But this fight for political recognition of farmers was really essential and important. And something that um, I was really interested in thinking about how movements during the 60s sort of played out in different parts of the world. Uh, so I thought it would be really interesting to first talk about this film and then talk about the context for the film and then um, talk about the political movements raised by the film and the fact that it's a, a cinema veritas film also that we can talk about. So, Miriam, welcome to KPFA. Thank you very much. So why don't we start and... Why don't you lay out something about this film and how it fits in first in terms of the political movements in Japan at that time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, as you were speaking, I thought about sort of two different ways that people often approach this film and even this era in cinema. And so some people come at it because they're really very interested in the politics. They want to understand how the student movements worked, how the um, how people organized, what was the relation between the different parties and factions, and you know what made it such a special moment of organization and mobilization and protest against government and police and these larger forces. And other people look at it in terms of the history of documentary, so really interested in what is in fact an unbelievably innovative moment in Japanese documentary that had a huge splash for sort of all subsequent documentary makers had to deal with Ogawa Shinsuke and Ogawa Productions' um, work in order to rethink how a documentary can connect with an audience, how a documentary maker can um, convey vividly and viscerally what's happening inside of a protest movement like this. Well, that's great because I'm interested in both parts. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's perfect and maybe even a couple of other parts. So, yeah. uh, 
I mean, the first part is that the filmmaker Shinzuka Ogawa was part of a collective, and this was the part, the time where I know that there was like the beginning of sixteen millimeter film and a, a different way of shooting film. So. What do you know about the social context that led to the the shooting of this film? Um, so in terms of where Ogawa came from, so Ogawa, you know, sometimes people say Ogawa Shinsuke, sometimes they talk about Ogawa Productions, and what that kind of ambivalence show, or the sort of blipping between the two names shows is the way that in some ways, Ogawa was the center, the spiritual leader, the sort of dynamic, charismatic dude at the head of this group. But in other ways, it was so much a collective production. And in fact, the very process of production was trying to overturn that kind of director and peon power structure, trying to experiment with some other way of... And Ogawa, you know, had come out of a whole history of documentary and educational film. And in the 50s, there was some really amazing theorists like Matsumoto Toshio who were trying to rethink documentary and avant-garde and thinking them in relation. So it sort of comes out of that in terms of the history of documentary. And then, you know, the 60s in Japan, even 1960, had huge student movements and a very intense... Um, kind of political upheaval. So Ogawa got his sort of kickoff um, or start in or before it was really called Ogawa Productions in filming the student movements, getting inside. He chose, you know, he pulled a group together. They looked at different universities and they chose one particular university. So the, um, the film before this is a film where he gets behind the barricades and is starting to show us what, you know, the passion and the fight and the struggles of students. And that film was very successful. Um, just context, should I keep going? Yes. Um, just contextually, um, they had broken from studio system and studio style distribution. So when they talked about their film movement, what they were really talking about was the movement that they did to gain distribution for their films. They sort of had this whole network of people and they went around showing the films, getting spaces to show the films. Like there was an act, intense activism just in the act of being outside of mainstream theaters, going to sometimes art cinemas, sometimes university auditoriums, sometimes smaller private spaces, showing these films, always having a discussion afterwards. And so that student... Uh, movement film that preceded this one was kind of the kickoff of that method. And after they finished with that, they decided, you know, they thought about it. Well, where can we go? Where can we continue our movement? And they chose San Rizuka, this sort of small farming village where Narita was thought to be uh, to be being built. The farmers had already been protesting for about two years at that point, and it was really intensifying. But um, so they, they made this selection, they moved to Sandizuka, and um, I guess what is sort of considered fundamental about their method is that they moved there, and although they understood themselves as outsiders to the movement itself, they didn't own farms there. They moved in, they lived there, they got, it's sort of a move of all of documentary from a kind of outside perspective, where you're 
looking from the outside in to trying to get on the inside, trying to be right, kind of up close, connected, invested in the very cause that you're, you're the subject of your documentary. So they are in the struggle. They're right there, up close, fighting alongside the farmers, strategizing, mapping the space, trying to, the surveyors, you know, from the airport team are trying to come in and survey the land of these farmers who haven't yet sold their land um, and who are protesting. And so they're in there kind of strategizing, how can we block the surveyors from coming down the road? You know, how can we, um, you know, the filmmakers are right up in there with the students who also decide to join the farmers and the three, the filmmakers, the students and the farmers are all strategizing and working together to do these protests. Does that give you a sense of the context both yeah. and protest-wise. Yes, and it's very interesting because the film itself starts, well, first there's text, and then it starts with uh, the sort of movement of people and then the farmer saying, you just destroyed our watermelons. And it's just there's something that's really radical. So here it is. So many of the filmmakers could have focused on themselves as filmmakers in an experience, the students who are the intellectual ones. But instead, the film actually starts in this very active, intense way with farmers just yelling about how their crops had just been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we see the disrespect and the kind of way they're being treated. And the um, yeah, that shot of that watermelon is just so memorable. It sticks with you. You see this broken open, it's black and white cinema and it's not sync sound, but you see this broken open watermelon and Ogawa's group, you know, lingers on that shot just as throughout the film in the midst of kind of big picture politics we get you know the sight of one of the activists hand on their knee kind of rubbing up and down we feel the anxiety with him as things are happening or we see a cigarette or we see a walkie-talkie and these sort of lingering moments wind up some kind of summarizing um or bringing to us even more beautifully and intensely what we can also see in the big picture of, you know, the people running back and forth and things like that. Well, there is a lot of running back and forth, and there are moments where uh, usually, well, in films later on, what would happen is that there would be like these shots that are cut, so then you know who's running and what's happening. And maybe for a Japanese audience, that would have been clearer. But for me, it was very interesting to start distinguishing how can I tell who are the students and who are the farmers and what are their position. And within the farmers, there's both the men, male farmers and the female farmers who are working in sort of having different insights about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And the way the confrontations take place, I think, are so revealing about the way Japanese society works, you know, like the many instances where the protesters ask the police to tell their name or the surveyors to tell their name, go ahead, stand up, take responsibility for what you're doing, be an individual here. And the way they resist, you know, that this kind of repetition of take responsibility, look what you're doing. And, uh, and the way the police resist um, that personalization and they're like we are doing this on behalf of a larger thing we you know no we won't and they won't tell why they're doing things and things like that so those direct confrontations wind up being very face-to-face but you're right that 
the chaos also, I think, did you feel like that gave you a sense viscerally of sort of what it would have been like to be inside? And then you wound up getting educated, it sounds like, in distinguishing what is a police helmet and a police outfit and a police riot shield versus what is a student helmet with a, you know, those kind of uh, cloths that they would use to protect themselves from uh, possible tear gas and things like that. So um, it sounds like the film took you in and wound up bringing you closer and more inside while replicating the chaos that it must have really been like to be running around in, you know, in this really jarring situation. That's a phenomenal explanation. I mean, just the fact that this is a film that pulls you into something and that you're experiencing elements as they're unfolding in a different way in a different sense of time. So, for example, there is a moment in the film where uh, I believe it's the students who start talking about whether things should still be nonviolent or whether there should be a switch to more violent radical movements. And so that you're seeing that that maybe the transformation of different groups is happening in different ways. Yeah, the transformation is happening in real time. So, you know, the idea of nonviolence, and I love about these movements and about this time period, how theoretical everyone was. I mean, I'm kind of a theory head, so I love theory, but the fact that while they're in the process of doing something that might not look theoretically grounded, it looks like a very simple us versus them story, the thinking through of, well, whether violence and what kind of violence and in relation to the state, and they have a big picture view that this is not just this farm and it's not just this kind of government moment, but it's part of this much bigger picture and there's the Vietnam War out there and the heroism of the um, the peasants is really, I mean, the, um, the farmers reminds them of the heroism of... Um, peasants and others in Vietnam that have stood up and how hard it is for a government force to win when there are individuals on the land connected to the land is some of the rhetoric of it but they you know they talk about all this this kind of thing well what violence is effective and what does it mean to do violence in the name of pushing back against state violence Yes, we're speaking with Mar- Miriam Sass and uh, the film The Battlefront for the Liberation of Japan, Summer in... Uh, Sanrizuka. <laughs> or sometimes the farmers say Sanrizuka, too, uh, but Sanrizuka uh-huh. is how I say it. Which is directed by Shinsuke Ogawa, and his collective team is, uh, is playing uh, next uh, tomorrow night at Pacific Film Archive. Now, that was the other part that was so interesting in the film because there is this way where I'm having to develop a sense of what the police are like and the sort of militarist presence. Because I do know that when it came to the student movements, maybe an, a year later, there was uh, what I recall, and you probably, I mean, you know much more about it than I do, but that there was a way where the the militarism in Japan made it so that the students wound up getting put in prison and there was a lot more violence than there was in other countries in terms of the repercussions of political movements in Japan. So how does that kind of movement and what happened later in the cities impact what we're seeing here, if you're, if you're looking at it in the more rural area? 
So it's very, it's very much connected. I mean, the students are actually there, present. They've been the kind of, uh, you know, kuko hantai, kuko hantai, like down with the airport, no airport. They link arms. A lot of the choreography of their protests, we, you know, we see very directly in the student protest movements against, um, you know, against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty um, in 1960, and we see it in the protests against the education system later. It's also very scary, you know, when you think about that level of repression and military um, force in relation to things that had happened earlier during World War II, and they were certainly, they certainly had that in mind. We don't want to be, you know, a repressive state. We want to, you know, we see American military presence here. It's very much because of American military presence that Narita was chosen, um, that the west side of Tokyo had, you know, the American base and the special um, kind of airspace that American planes were allowed to fly into. And so um, they ch- they're choosing the east side of Japan, they th- of, of Tokyo. They thought that because a bunch of that was imperial horse lands, you know, and pastures belonging to the emperor, excuse me, emperor, that there wouldn't be as much protest and, you know, that this, this all would kind of blow over really easily. And so, um, so in terms of the context, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a moment when the cameraman gets arrested. And um, if you, Marcus Nornis has written a wonderful book about Ogawa Shinsuke and his um, basically whole career, a really highly recommended book called Forest of Pressure. And in that book, he includes um, the affidavits, uh, the the testimony, the written testimony of the cameraman who's arrested, the assistant director. And it's very, very brutal what the police did to them, kicking them and three or four on them at a time and knocking them over and knocking the camera and everything. But what we see in the film, it's quite a different perspective it's much more like we're in the space we also don't really know what's going on we see the challenge to the police why are you arresting us um why did you arrest them and this kind of repeated questioning so we're kind of brought much closer and much more into the interior no objective third person view this is something that marcus nornis also points out none of this kind of we understand what happened and we see the injustice and it's all clear much more of this like in the moment we're with them in the arrest. We're with them. We're knocked over. You know, the camera, the second camera starts rolling. The sound is out of sync as it is much of the time. But we're given a sense both of what's happening on camera and in the moment. And also through the sound, we're given a sense that much more is happening all off screen. So we we feel that kind of many, many actors all acting at the same time. Um, in Yeah, and it's very violent and intense. It is really interesting because if we think about like Battle of Algiers or uh, uh, even like uh, Battle of Chile, which happens maybe you know a few years later, that there's some way where I felt much more inside this film, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that there was a way where instead of trying to put everything in context for the outsider, it really seemed like you were right there 
experiencing it in a way that um, the fantasy about like those reels about this is history, you know, before movies in the 40s or something. But this is actually really happening. And I'm wondering what the theoretical understanding was of the filmmaker um, to kind of make these kinds of decisions uh, using the 16 millimeter film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the theory had to do with no longer pretending to be objective no longer actually being objective. They really are not objective. They care just as deeply as the farmers and the students who are all discussing what's the way to do the struggle. They're, we don't know at the beginning of the struggle how the struggle's going to do. And um, I mean, I guess we do now because we know about the airport. But um, but in some ways, yeah, this that is part of the theory. And they pursued that not only in this phase of their career where they spent... Um, nine years living in Sandrizuka and made seven films. So, um, and then they moved up to the village of Magino, where they for seventeen years. So they really move in. It's not like one of those film crews where they're like, okay, we have three months. Let's you know, let, that's a wrap. Let's go. It's the, these are lifelong relationships that they build with the local people, and um, so that's part of their film theory, the collectivity thing. The getting all the way inside. Um, Tsuchimoto Noriaki also had that theory, and they were connected and, you know, part of that same documentary movement of really, you can't just exploit people that are having a hard time by taking a cool documentary of them and making money off of it or something. You know, you're, you have to constantly question your own position. Am I exploiting this situation? You know, to us, it looks like we're very inside, but to them, they were constantly questioning what are we doing here? You know, are we causing harm? Are you know, do we? What is our right to actually take on this struggle? And the students are questioning that too. And I think that constant questioning is a really key part of the theory. Well, that seems so much more advanced than so many other filmmakers at the time. Where uh, I think it's only now that filmmakers are really realizing that there's no such thing as I'm not just immediately, but you know, this was in the '60s, so this was very radical position. Yeah, and um you know, and the camera as weapon kind of rhetoric that comes up in um other filmmaking traditions around the world, you know, there's this very um strong awareness that their camera is doing something. I find it's it's a very dividing experience because on the one hand, I'm very in it in the moment when I'm watching the film, I'm right in there, but on the other hand, you know, I'm looking closely into these faces these young people and the students, but also the police, you know, that the way that the camera goes right to the faces of the police and comes really up close and shows us their eyes and has our, um, you know, our filmmakers questioning, who are you? And the peasants are like, who is your mother? And what would your mother think about what you're doing here? So we have this kind of really intimate, um, intimate perspective where the camera plays this role of really showing us both the humanity and the inhumanity of the participants. Yes, and it's all done in in black and white. We're talking about the battlefront for the liberation of Japan, and I'm talking with Miriam Sass. My name's Raina Cowan, and this is Frame to Frame. So it's it's really interesting thinking about this film. Well, first off, I think the main organizer just died for the um, for the Narita Airport. Uh, he was 69. So these were very young people who were organizing. Uh-huh. And you mentioned that there was a way that 
the filmmakers are trying to be engaged and respectful and understand the culture. So they're outsiders and they have their own political views, although uh, they're using, as you said, the camera as a weapon. So I'm interested in what, since you understand much more about Japanese culture at the time, what were the different positions of the farmers and uh, the student activists and the filmmakers and how did they wind up working together? Because coalition building is something we still really don't understand very well. Yeah, it's really um, it's really complicated. And you see some of it in the film. You start to see some of the different perspectives, even in relation to how violent should we be? What should our tactics be? So we see the fact that it's called Battlefront. And we see these maps, you know, that they're making, they're setting up spaces. They understand like whose farm is whose. So from the within the, and also what they choose not to say, because there are some farmers who pretty quickly sold their farms and, uh, and, you know, kind of gave in. And then there are these other farmers who held out through thick and thin in spite of incredible pressures. And so there's tensions among the farmers as well, not just between the other groups. And then the sort of different ideological perspectives of each um, group from the filmmaker. I mean, I guess I said film, you know, camera as a weapon, and that's something that we think about today. But to them, they're really, they're they're right in there and they're... um, I don't know how I would express it in their terms better, but it's this sort of, it is film as movement. Like film itself becomes the politics and the political, um, a political organizing space in itself. So they're right there fighting alongside them, but their way of fighting is film. The You know, we see these women who are, part of, you know, standing inside their houses as the surveyors kind of track their dirty boots through the houses. And we see these nice calligraphies hanging inside their house. We see their homes and we see, oh, okay, this is somebody's home and someone's trying to take it away. And this is their land that they've been working and someone's trying to take it away. For the students, you know, it's part of a big picture government, politics, sovereignty, you know, capitalism, um, you know, global, it's a big, big problem. There's Dostoevsky and Marx and Benjamin that they're reading and they're thinking, you know, about um, what would be the right tactic to use within this micro space that would resonate beyond this smaller um, thing. And so for them, they're also reading the farmers as a certain kind of possibility of, you know, that their connection to the land and their legitimacy of their claim can be mobilized in a broader movement too. And, you know, and when the, um, when Ogawa, Ogawa Pro, the, the Ogawa's group, which was divided into so many little groups, they produced newsletters and they, um, you know, they did research on all different areas of Japan and they spread out throughout Japan and they made all this network of connections so that the film could go from place to place throughout Japan. So that's their, you know, that's their movement is a whole different sort of approach. So I guess if I had to summarize it, I'd say, you know, thinking about the film movement, the, the making of the film and then also the distribution of the film as their form of movement and the the students thinking through it in um, 
in this kind of global capitalism, big picture kind of way. So I'm just wondering then, what was it like? Do you know how it was to show this film throughout Japan and what the response was? Um, I know some of it. I mean, I've seen, uh, I've, I, I myself was not in Ogawa Pro or didn't know the people myself, although I've heard some eyewitness testimony from others who were there and remember the, the drinking. There's a lot of drinking and discussing late at night. Um, it was a bit dude-oriented, and so that's something that Barbara Hammer made a film about, critiquing um, more than a bit, maybe. And, uh, but, um, but it involved, um, you know, setting up screens and projecting and collecting donations from supporters, which they could use towards their next film. And then a lot of discussions. So the discussions inside the film kind of extended out into the discussions after the film as they, and people felt very validated and motivated to do more protesting and more movements having seen this because, you know, when you're inside of it, um, nobody knows. Nobody knows the work you're doing and the bravery, these kind of mo many micro moments of bravery that I think are so moving. Take a trip back to medieval Spain as the 2018 Christmas Revels celebrates the turning of the year in grand style. The Christmas Revels thrills audiences in song, dance, and magical tales with this year's new production, Ancient Mysteries of Andalusian Spain. Sing along with a huge chorus and join in with the rollicking Lord of the Dance. The Christmas Revels plays nine performances at the Scottish Rite Theatre in Oakland on two weekends, December 8th through the 16th. The Scottish Rite Auditorium is wheelchair accessible and is located on Lakeside Drive in Oakland, adjacent to Lake Merritt. Tickets for the Christmas Revels are on sale now at CaliforniaRevels.org or call the box office at 510-452-9334. 